So welcome to a standalone class I've titled An Introduction to the Cosmic Powers. Now, it might be better titled A Teaser, <laughs> because that's it. That's all we're able to do. This is a vast, deep, complicated, rich, and to some degree controversial topic, but one I hope to just simply introduce or maybe reintroduce to you if you're already familiar with it. And um, with the end goal simply being to broaden and open your perception, broaden and open your mind and your eyes, your spiritual eyes, to those things that are already in God's Word and already in our liturgy that you'll gain a new and richer appreciation for. Once you have eyes to see, you'll start to see it everywhere. You'll start to see it in a more connected way. So, without further ado, let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, so I've taken the title, The Cosmic Powers, from Ephesians chapter 6. If you want to open up your Bible to Ephesians 6, that's great. I'm going to introduce this, um, and then we'll come back to it. In fact, for our purposes today... Ephesians is going to be our main text. At Ephesians 6, verse 10, now interestingly, Paul has, of course, in the previous chapter, just given us some of the most concrete, grounded teaching in all the New Testament in regard to what we now call the vocations or the holy callings of God. So he speaks to husbands and wives. He speaks to parents and children. He speaks to slaves and masters. And one can't help but marvel in maybe the juxtaposition of or just simply the connection that Paul draws between these earthly, everyday realities and then the hidden or cosmic reality that permeates all things. So at chapter 6 of Ephesians, verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, the methodius to diabolu, so the methods of the devil. For we do not wrestle or wage war against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Okay, the cosmocrateros of darkness, this. That's actually what it says. So, against the cosmic powers of darkness, this. And that gets translated into the cosmic powers over this present darkness. But here, these are cosmic powers of darkness. Now, as we're going to see, there's cosmic powers of light. But what I want you to also see right off the bat, and no doubt you've noticed this before, is that it's not so simple as the devil. What we've experienced so far, um, I think, in our post-enlightenment, quote-unquote, scientific world is a great emptying. And it's really a delusion and a deceit. So when we look up, particularly at night, what do you see? Stars. And what do you call the black stuff all around it? Space. And that's a monumental shift in how the ancients perceived the cosmos. So C.S. Lewis does this so wonderfully. In one of his novels, uh, Out of the Silent Planet, I haven't read this novel, there's a character named Ransom, and I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis to this effect. But Ransom, as time wore on, 
became aware of another and more spiritual cause for his progressive lightning and exaltation of heart. A nightmare long endured in the modern mind by the mythology that flows in the wake of science. The mythology that flows in the wake of science was falling off him. He had read of, quote-unquote, space. At the back of his thinking for years had lurked the dismal fancy of the black, cold vacuity, the utter darkness which was supposed to separate the worlds. He had not known how much it affected him till now, now that the very name space seemed a blasphemous libel for this Empyrean ocean of radiance in which they swam. You can tell he's a space traveler, can you not? He could not call it dead. He felt life pouring into him from it every moment. How indeed should it be otherwise, since out of this ocean the worlds and all their life had come? He had thought it barren. He saw now that it was the womb of worlds, whose blazing and innumerable offspring looked down nightly, even upon the earth, with so many eyes, and here with how many more? No, space was the wrong name. Older thinkers had been wiser when they named it simply the heavens. The heavens which declared the glory, the happy climes that lie where day never shuts his eye up in the broad fields of the sky. He quoted Milton's words to himself lovingly at this time and often. So one of the things that our post-enlightenment, quote-unquote, scientific world has done has emptied the heavens... And Christianity, in an attempt both, well, I think both formed from this quote-unquote mythology of quote-unquote science, but likewise pandering to the modern scientific mind, has gone through a revolution of emptying itself. So that when we look up at night, we see space, and of course in the cities with light pollution and good old regular pollution, we see but a few lights. The joy of going out into the desert or to the mountains and looking up is the sky is filled with light and diversity and intrigue and interest and motion and wonder. Okay, So we've lost this existentially and experientially when we look up, but we've also lost it in our mind's eyes. We look up and just see emptiness and void. And then spiritually speaking, what has occurred is we see Satan and maybe the bad angels that we call demons and we see like maybe the good angels and God and it's all very foggy and very nebulous. It's not concrete. It's not anywhere in particular. And to be absolutely certain, it's anemic compared to what the Bible teaches. So when we're referring to the cosmic powers, what I want you to see once more in Ephesians 6 is that, right, the devil is the overarching evil. That's verse 11. We need God's very armor, the very armor that the Son of God himself wears to be placed upon us that we might stand against the methodologies and schemes of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against, and note now, the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies, in the heavenly realms or the heavenly places. Now, what this means to the ancient mind is when you think about the air, and this is a phrase that will come up, the air that you're breathing, it's the heavens. This is the heavens where the birds fly, the butterflies 
flap around. So this is the first heavens, and it's the lowest heavens. Once you get outside of what we would call our atmosphere, or in the movement, a place of movement, not of birds and butterflies and bats, but of planets and stars, again, just think visually here, planets and stars, now you're in the second heavens. When you think about the book of Revelation and St. John saying, I was taken up in the spirit, and then he gives his revelation of the throne room of God, there you're talking about the third or highest heavens. Remember St. Paul saying, I know a man who went to the third heavens. That's what he's talking about. And heard there things which cannot be uttered. Okay? Now, what Paul is alluding to already when he's talking about the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers, and the spiritual forces, we don't want to, at this point, focus so much on any kind of hierarchy or systematization. But we, what we want to see is that as Paul perceives the world, he sees a hierarchy expanding from earthly kingdoms and earthly powers all the way up through the three heavens. So that there are um, different layers and levels of authority and rulership going all the way up. The parallel to this might be, and correct me if I'm wrong, this isn't exactly something I pay a lot of attention to, but here we are in Capistrano Beach in Orange County. So we have various levels of government going all the way up, be it a city council or whatever's in charge. I think, aren't we under Dana Point and Dana Point City Council? And then... Um, at the county level, of course, there's a sheriff and there's other uh, government and governmental powers. And then on up, what else would it be next? The state, would it not be? Yes. The state after the county. And then, of course, we're part of the United States, so you have a federal government. And so look at all these layers of government. Here we are in one place, and yet there are layers of government. I think the easiest way to wrap your mind around the idea of the cosmic power is that there are layers of heavenly government that extend all the way up. Now, we don't understand how they work. It's not a one-to-one way. There's not angels delivering police or delivering speeding tickets and enforcing uh, you know, laws and this kind of thing that we, that we are tangible and concrete and immediately parallel to the way a sheriff might or the way a, a state legislature might. But nonetheless, there is a governance that God gives to heavenly beings. And this governance is multi-layered and complicated and extends all the way up, as it were. So far, so good? Okay. Now, if you think, well, this is kind of odd, one of the things we'll show is that this is absolutely permeates the book of Ephesians, but then permeates the whole of the scriptures, this view. Okay? And this helps us understand that when you're talking about Satan and the angels under him, you're not talking about just little spirit beings that kind of around, go around and like poke you in the side and ah, that hurt and pop your tires you're driving down the freeway and maybe rattle the cabinets in your house. Or You're talking about governances. You're talking about authorities. So that in the layered structure of authority that extends up into the third heavens, you now have angels who have defected against God, but they hold their office and authority. And you have angels that remain faithful to God, and they hold their office and authority. And that office and authority ultimately extends even down here to earth. So do you remember in Daniel, we've got these wars of nations and you've got angels contending against angels. That's why they have dominion, they've been given to rule over these nations. Okay, more on that in just a minute. But whether you realize it or not, you've already been singing 
about this several times a year. <laughs> so what I've printed out for you here is maybe one of the most fascinating hymns. And I can still remember to this day uh, a pastor telling me that it was pretty void and vacuous. And I thought the same thing. Because when you just read it, it sounds like it's nothing but just praises. It's a hymn called Ye Watchers and Ye Holy Ones. But the value of it will, in this context will immediately come out and you'll see that it's actually filled with content, delightful and almost ornery content. If you'll uh, just pass that back, please. Which I love. And I think that this is such a microcosm of the way the church works that for years and maybe decades you say some things or you sing some things and you know in part and then it dawns upon you that there's something much greater going on. Okay, ye watchers and ye holy ones. i got to grab my... I hope I brought it with me. There I did, yeah. Okay, so I'll, t- I'll talk about the origins of the hymn in just a minute. But first just to go through it with you. So, ye watchers and ye holy ones. What's a watcher? Only one place in the canonical scriptures is watcher mentioned, and it's it's a class of angel mentioned in the book of Daniel. So, in in, um, in, in intertestamental literature... The watchers, so you're talking about between the Old and the New Testament, the theology of the watchers. These aren't books you're going to find in the Bible, and nor should you, okay? But the theology of the watchers becomes super important. And they're taking that language canonically from Daniel, and as they're meditating and reading into it, it like in a book like First Enoch, for example, they're seeing watchers as angels in the Old Testament that fell into great sin, that had dominion and lordship over parts of the earth and fell into great sin. There's bad watchers and there's good watchers. Okay? Now, there's more to this story, and in intertestamental period, it was very common that you remember the, in Genesis 6 where the Sons of God take wives from the daughters of men. Now, from the time of Augustine forward, so you're talking about the 5th century, the Western Church, by and large, follows Augustine in seeing the sons of God as the offspring of Seth. Christians. That's how Augustine sees it. That's how Luther sees it. That's how the Western Church sees it. That's how I've taught it. And then the sons of man would be, or the daughters of men, excuse me, would be uh, the offspring, particularly the women, of Cain. So you have an intermarrying of believers and non-believers that then, for whatever reason, create these things called Nephilim, and the Nephilim are giants. Okay? How is it that an intermarrying between believer and unbeliever create giants? All right. Well, the Western tradition has its various answers for these things, that this was a curse of God, etc., and unique for the time. But if you go back before Augustine to some of the early church fathers and go back earlier than that to the early testamental period, you're going to find that the view of a book like First Enoch, for example, again, is that the sons of God who take for wives the daughters of men are angels, specifically watchers, who cohabitate with women, and the cohabitation results in monstrosities known as the Nephilim. The Nephilim are giants. By giants, we don't mean 60-foot-tall critters, but like 9 or 10. This, by the way, then, is, again, in the intertestamental period, the way of seeing the ancestors that come down the line to where all of a sudden you've got, when uh, out of the Exodus, as Moses is leading the people, and then he's not allowed to go in, so Joshua takes them in. But you remember what happens and why they have to wander. They go to the land, they send the spies, and the spies see what inhabiting the land? 
giants. And so the giants are there, and the giants represent... um, I think this makes a lot of sense. The giants represent this great spiritual evil that has infested mankind. And this is understandable, then, why God tells Joshua and the Israelites, when they go in, to exterminate everything. Because... And not only are these people groups inhabiting Canaan sort of like, I don't know, the Stalins of the ancient world. I mean, they're grotesque, violent people who are under the judgment of God. But they've got these giants and these descendants of giants living in their midst. Now, whether you believe that the giants are created by the uniting of fallen angels with human beings, or whether you believe that it's the believing Sethites and the unbelieving Cainites and the punishment of God is these monstrosity giants. Either way, the giants come about biblically, it's irrefutable, through great sin. So far, so good? Okay. So this is connecting the dots, why you suddenly see giants, why it's such a big deal that David defeats a giant, why are the giant, everywhere there are giants, God calls for a full-out extermination a quote-unquote genocide of that people group. Okay, so for the intertestamental period, they call these folks the Watchers. And in the book of Enoch, um, you've got these, uh, these fallen angelic beings, which, by the way, uh, both Jude and Peter, First Peter, are, um, as authors, they're aware of First Enoch, they're aware of this theology, and they, they're either quoting it or referring to it. So let me give you just a, a quick glimpse of what we mean by that. And that is if you go to 1 Peter and you look at 1 Peter 3. By the way, it's the book of Enoch because is it really written by Enoch? No. Enoch lived much earlier, and Enoch is said to have done what? Walked with God, and he'd been taken up. So Enoch and Elijah stand out as those who apparently did not meet with any kind of physical death, but were taken up. And so Enoch is chosen as the author's pseudonym. All right, in 1 Peter 3, you're going to glimpse this. Hang on one second. All right, just take a look at 18 and following. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this now, saves you. Okay, Peter's point is obviously to talk about Jesus and talk about the flood and talk about baptism. But what does he talk about also? The spirits in prison because formerly they did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Now, who are these spirits or whatever? But if you read this and read Enoch together, first Enoch together, then the spirits are the watchers who sinned with humanity. And according to the book of Enoch, God threw them in the prison. Now that's interesting because if you said, if you said where is the devil? It's such a basic question. We know he can't go into heaven because Revelation 12 has cast him out of heaven. So where can he be? On earth, can he be in hell? It would be his domain, so he can be in hell, but he can come and go from hell. Whoever these folks are can't. Likewise, do you remember how um, when Jesus casts out the demon, and he first asks the demon's name, and he says, We are legion, for we are many. Remember the man who's naked, breaking the chains and all this, legion. 
And they say, have you come to torment us? We beseech you not to throw us into the abyss or pit. What is that? And if it's just hell, can't they come and go from hell as they please? Isn't that their domain? Mm. So the abyss is the prison within hell. The pit is the prison within hell. So when Christ descends into hell, as we confess in the creed, he's descending into this domain where the evil spirits can come and go, but not all of them. Some of them are bound there in hell's prison, which is the abyss. You can just connect that dot with, in Revelation, remember the angel of the abyss? The angel who comes down has the key to open the abyss, and then what comes out is Apollyon, the destroyer, with all his demonic grasshopper demons. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Do you remember this? So there's a jailbreak at the end, and they all are let out of this abyss, and they all come up and torment the earth, and then they're all cast into the lake of fire forever. Okay, so these watchers, ye watchers and ye holy ones, now you know something about them and something about the backstory, even if it's extra biblical, you'll see all the connections with what the Bible does say. All right, there's more, and more to the point of what the cosmic powers are. So he mentions the watchers and the holy ones, but he hasn't yet really begun to lead us along the fun. Okay, so ye watchers and ye holy ones, bright seraphs, cherubim, and thrones. So we have authorities in the cherubim and thrones. Okay. And then we have raise the glad strain, alleluia. Cry out, dominions, princedoms, powers. Is some of that sounding familiar to the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present, present darkness? Yeah, present, sorry, present darkness, uh, slip of the tongue. Spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Okay, so you've got seraphs, Cherubim and thrones, you've got dominions, princedoms, powers. The next triad is you have virtues, archangels, angels, choirs. Now, if you're like me, you've sung this for many, many years, and you've just assumed, well, the guy's pretty wordy, because what he really just means is angels. And while it's true that he means angelic beings, what he's drawing on is actually a 6th century tradition, and we all sing this as before God as if it's 100% true. He's drawing on a 6th century author named Pseudo-Dionysius, who comes up with the hierarchy of angelic beings. There are a triad of triads, three threes. And he's got this, Uh, beautifully represented. So in Pseudo-Dionysius, it is uh, seraphs. Seraphim, um, an example of seraphim in the Bible, are uh, the creatures that in Isaiah 6, when he has the vision, and you've got the six-winged seraphs. We sang about them in our hymn uh, this morning, a different hymn, the six-winged seraphs. And then we talked about cherubim with sleepless eye. Okay, we're talking about different angels gathered around the throne of God, which also have different rank or authority. And so here you have seraphs, cherubim. Cherubim are often depicted as like, almost like animal-like, sometimes with lion heads and wings out the back, walking on four. For example, in one of the Psalms, uh, Yahweh is said to ride upon a cherubim, which if you're thinking of like, I don't know, an angel, like an angel that looks like a man with wings, it's kind of an, a ludicrous. <laughs> like, what's he doing? Piggyback time? That's not what's happening, okay? A cherubim would look to our eye like a, like a beast, like an amalgam of the beasts, okay? Or, or like a lion-esque in its form uh, with great wings. So cherubim are a different class, and you see them. All right, and then you've got uh, thrones, So that is the first triad for Pseudo-Dionysius. That's the highest. Then the middle is what comes next, the dominions. And here's a difference. Uh, Pseudo-Dionysius has dominions, virtues, powers. But this author, for whatever reason, I don't know, and I haven't been able to find any information, has dominions, princedoms, 
powers. So there's, that's the middle triad. And then the lower triad is virtues, archangels, angels, choirs, which, of course, Pseudo-Dionysus just has princedoms there. So princedoms and virtues are flip-flop for whatever reason I don't know. But what I'm trying to get you to just see is the richness of what was already there, you just didn't know it, and that's that we're singing about this hierarchical structure of the heavenly reign. Now, all of that matters and is of the utmost importance when it comes to Christ. Otherwise, we're going to miss we're going to miss the cosmic beauty of what occurs through the death, resurrection, ascension, which is maybe the most underestimated and underappreciated of all the Christological events. Because the ascension of Christ in this context takes on an ultimate glory and meaning. But let me pause there before we make a transition and make a step. I just want to show you these things. Let me see if you have any questions. Yes? Um, I just got confused. So, watchers are angels? No. So, watchers and holy ones are, uh, he's using them as uh, uncategorized uh, angels. So, he's not putting them in the, th- in the triad of triads. He's got them standing alone, ye watchers and ye holy ones. So, it's difficult to know, but the rationale would probably be that it's almost impossible to categorize those types of angels and probably the watchers and the holy ones. If the holy ones are referred to as the Beni Elohim in a tight, narrow group, that's where you get into some of the divine council idea that God rules via this council of super high angels. That I, I'll show you why that might make sense in a minute. But that this council of super high angels are referred to as the gods, and when they defect against Yahweh, uh, they lead the nations into idolatry. And they become, the, they become the major... So, like, if when you think of the old gods and you think of, like, they all have different... Like, okay, what would be an example? Help, help me out. I'm drawing a blank here and I don't know why. Um, oh, okay. So, like, Mars and Ares would be two different gods from two different ages, but they're both the god of... War. Okay? So, nice work. So, you've got these gods, like the god of war, and he goes by different names. And so, in, um, what would it be? I, th- I don't know my, uh, my Hinduism well enough. Isn't Shiva the god of war in Hinduism? So, you've got these false gods by name, and they're diff- they look like they're different because they have different names, but the argument here would be they're not, in fact, different. You have a god of war who goes by these names, who is known among the peoples of the earth by these names. But there's an actual god, an actual evil entity there. So this is where I said, like, and and I've said this before, just in a normal, everyday kind of framework, and that is that the real work of the devil and his kingdom isn't like banging around in your cabinet or making your head spin around 360 degrees and... Um, or, you know, levitating you. and Like, that's not the real work of the devil. The real work of the devil at the highest level is he's running religions and countries in opposition to God and in opposition to the people of God. That's what the heavenly hierarchy is about. Who do you think is opposed to this? The good angels who are here in laid out in their... I, and again, now let me be clear. We sing this, so there's a certain degree in which we believe it's true. But I would never bind anyone's conscience. I would never say you have to believe in the triad of triads of angels. But what is biblical, what you do need to believe in, is that there is a hierarchy of cosmic powers, good and evil, and they're constantly waging war, and that war affects their domains all the way down to our domain. So it's where on Easter Sunday I preached that 
though we look at governments, though we look at large corporations, though we look at maybe a, an elite secretive group of uh, the super wealthy and super evil, St. Paul says, don't stop at the puppets. We don't war against flesh and blood. Go to the puppet masters, the rulers and authorities, the cosmic powers. Those are the real ones behind it. Now, where does that come in in terms of a practical thing? When you put on the full armor of God and you're confessing the right stuff and you're living the right way and when you fall into sin, you're repenting of it and you're being cleansed by the blood of Christ and you're praying and you're fasting and you're engaged, guess what you're participating in positively? This cosmic war that is going on all around us and all the way above us up into the heavens. When you're unaware of this and not participating and sitting on the bench, as it were, you're at best not doing much and at worst aiding the cosmic powers of darkness. So St. Paul and the rest of the scriptures are opening our eyes to this reality that we don't see that the mythology of science has stripped away from us and the idea that Christianity needs to become palatable to the modern Scientific man means we strip it all the way down to it's pretty much just God and Satan, and yeah, there's some angels floating around, and that's it. That's not the nature of the cosmos. Okay, so um, any questions? Any uh, anything strike you so far? All right. So there's a. I'm seeing some faces like doubtful. <laughs> so maybe we should uh, maybe we should dig into the scriptures to get a little bit more of this. So when Pseudo-Dionysius and uh, other prominent theologians of the medieval period are writing this stuff, they're thinking of Ephesians 1.21. So if you've got Ephesians open, let's go there quickly. So um, at Ephesians 1, in fact, I'll do this real quick. Just start with me at verse 3, and we're going to get there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There it is again. What are these heavenly places? Well, right down from the lowest level up to the highest are the heavenly places. And because of what Christ has done, he's blessed us throughout these heavenly places. Okay? Now, we're not, Paul's going to explain what he means, but that's what he's saying so far. Even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all, all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. Okay, so the goal is the uniting of the heavens and the earth through Christ in the fullness of time. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of for of his glory in him you also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised holy spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory now what is the inheritance do you remember in isaiah what god says will be the inheritance of his son the nations. 
I will give the nations as your inheritance. Okay? What Paul is playing on is this reality. We'll go look at it next. And that is in Deuteronomy. So you're thinking in this regard, okay? You're thinking in Genesis, and you're thinking now of the Tower of Babel. So you've got two major disasters that happen. Three if you count the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. But there's just not a major thing like a flood or like the scattering of humanity over the face of the earth. Okay, You have the fall of Adam and Eve and then you've got whatever angers God so much that he drowns the world in the flood. That's why the intertestamental people said that this has to do with the watchers and their sin and that they taught men all manner of evil and wickedness and perversion. So you've got these two falls, potentially, and these two judgments. And then you've got a third at the Tower of Babel, which the Tower of Babel is a ziggurat, and it's what everybody is going to storm heaven with, and we're going to be as gods once more. And so God is irritated by this, and he scatters them in their languages, remember? And he makes it so that they can't speak, so that they're forced to distribute themselves all over the earth. And what he does is, we'll take a look at this in Deuteronomy, he disinherits them. At that point in time, God is the God of all the peoples, and he says, I already have been through this. I destroyed all humanity for its wickedness, saving Noah and seven others. I created a new human race. I've given you a second chance, and look what you've done. You've done this horrible, heinous thing. I'm over it. I divorce myself. I'm from you. I'm no one's God, and I give you into the hands of other gods. Who are those other gods in Deuteronomy 32? They're high-ranking angels. Those high-ranking angels, instead of guiding the nations as they should, those high-ranking angels lead the nations into rebellion against God. Thus you have like Psalm 82, where God is judging the gods, judging these angels. So you've got fallen angels and the governmental structures that God disinherited. He gave them over to the nation, or he gave the, the nations over to the gods. Then what does God do? He picks Abraham and he says, I will make you the father of many people, and through you all the nations, all the families of the earth will bless. So God picks one nation to be his own nation, his own special people. This is where you get the Jews and the Gentiles, or the Jews and the nations. Okay? And Now, if you're, if you're keen to this language, you'll hear it all throughout our liturgy. You'll hear the glory of, the Gen, or the glory of Israel, for the salvation of the nations, this kind of language. Okay? So then, God has disinherited the nations. Now he promises his son that I will give you for your inheritance the nations. He's going to take them away from the false gods, these angelic beings who fell and led them astray, and he's going to put them under the reign of Christ. That's why when Christ comes, how does he proclaim the gospel? It doesn't make any sense to us. He says the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. The reign of God is here. That means very little to our ears. But if you're keen to all this theology, you realize that he's saying, I have come and I will take the nations again as my inheritance so that all who believe in me from the nations will be under my reign and under my kingdom once more. That reality hasn't happened since before Babel where God was willing to claim all the nations under his reign. That's the language of the inheritance of the Son. What is God going to do with those fallen gods and all the fallen angels that inhabit the hierarchies in the heavenly places? You think he's going to keep them there after the judgment? They're gone. Who's going to take their place? 
once more to Ephesians. So picking up where we left off, let's just pick up at verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. If Christ inherits the nations as the arch ruler, he reigns, who also will reign with him? He's the king of kings and the lord of lords, and we are those small K kings and small L lords, and where the fallen angel powers and authorities will be removed, he will insert there instead his holy ones, his saints. So that what God envisions is a reign of his son and a co-reign under his son of saints and angels. You think, well, what are we going to be doing? There's not going to be any drama. There's not going to be any sin. What's there to reign? Okay. Well, here here again is an analogy. You rule over your house. There you create order or disorder. You make a dinner and you draw your family in and it's a place of blessing or it's a place of cursing. It's a place where people are healed and comforted and given strength and camaraderie. Or it's a place where people are picked on and griped at and other people are roasted and their reputations devoured. You create. That is your domain. Now that's just a microcosm. You don't have to have a house to have a domain. Wherever you, You don't have to have property in your name to have a domain. Wherever you are, there you have effect. You have an administration. What are you going to create in this moment? What are you going to bring in this moment? Okay, now that's just a microcosm for the fact of if there is a new heavens and the new earth, in what way will it be shaped and formed unto the glory of God? In what way will all the varying layers of authority interact together to bring about the glory of God and the instantiation of an ever greater paradise in, heaven, in the heavens and the earth, melded and married as one. You can see this in the nation idea that um, God gives lordship to Adam and Eve over creation. What were they supposed to do? Tend to the garden, make the garden ever more beautiful and ordered and pleasing, ever more heaven on earth, and then they were to be fruitful so that they would have children, so their children would just stay in the Garden of Eden? Well, no, then it wouldn't be Heaven for Adam and Eve. You want your kids to leave eventually. So the goal was that, they, that the offspring of Adam and Eve are supposed to go out into all the earth and turn all the earth into Eden, an ever-increasing Eden. And the sky's the limit. Who knows? Probably when the whole earth was turned into Eden, it'd be time for the next eon, the next chapter, the next age. But we never got there. It got truncated. It got turned into a disaster. It got turned into a mess. But when the heavens and the, new, and the new earth, the new heavens and new earth, are created by God, it's like a blank canvas. It's going to be good. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to, in a sense, be perfect. But there's going to be a way in which we take that out into the cosmos and beautify and bring and create all the goodness and godly things that God gives us to do. Okay? So that's the rulership or the reign over the cosmos that God's going to give to the good saints and the good angels. There's only good saints, but to the saints and angels. And that's going to be the hierarchy of heaven or the cosmic powers in their final form. Okay, so let me, um, let me show you a couple other things. As promised, let's go to Deuteronomy 32. And I just want to show you this very quickly so you can see the disinheritance of the nations. And then I think I want to just show you one more thing, and that will probably be our time. I, obviously, as you can see, this is an introduction. 
It's a teaser. Are you not teased? And uh, obviously, you're kind of scratching your head and wondering if there is more. And the answer is, oh, yes, there's tons more. Uh, There are many, many proofs and proof texts that can be used. Okay, so I said Deuteronomy. Gosh, I've got more to cover than I even wanted, or than I... I thought I was stripping it down, and I've got too much as it is. Okay, so Deuteronomy... Hang on one second. Let me, for whatever reason, I'm not seeing the reference. Just one second. Let me pull this up. Okay. Right around verse 8 is where it is. So let's just pick up at verse 1. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain. My speech distill as the dew. Deuteronomy 32. I don't, I don't know if I got you confused there. My speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. Okay, interesting. Who's the they here? They are crooked and twist they are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the people according to the numbers of the sons of God. Now, if that's human beings, it's impossible to make sense of. If sons of God are the highest ranking angels who become the corrupted gods of the corrupted people, then this makes all the sense in the world. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, okay, when did he do this? When did he send the nations out to us into their lands, their own unique lands? That's after Babel. That's when he divided mankind. He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Are there 12 nations? No, there's a bit more than that. <laughs> So we can also be certain that these sons of gods are the angels. And he disinherits them. Why? Because God disinherits the peoples. Why? Well, again, look at verse 5. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. See how he disinherits them? If you're not my child, are you going to get my inheritance? Nope. So he disinherits them because they're a crooked and twisted generation. All right, so he hands them over to the gods. Now the gods are supposed to rule them in justice and equity, and they don't. They rule the people by, hey, worship us instead of Yahweh. Okay, so then let's, uh, like I said, I think there's one last place that we'll have time to go to here. And that's 1 Corinthians 2. And I'll, and I'll show you how Paul is, again, uh, picking up on this theology and giving us some rather wonderful things to contemplate. So 1 Corinthians 2 is where we're going to go. And by the way, if um, this is all like kind of confusing to you and you want just to sort of like 
hey, forget for a minute what Rhodey said. What does the Bible say? Then what you want to do is go home and have some lunch, and then you want to read Ephesians. Uh, Don't worry about the details. Just read Ephesians from chapter 1 to chapter 6. You can do it in like 20 or 30 minutes. Just read it in the context of what I've told you, and you're going to see Paul explaining all of this, and you're going to see Paul setting Christ above the hierarchy of the cosmic powers. Okay? So, looking at 1 Corinthians 2, and this will be a nice way to end. So, look at uh, 2 verse 1. And when I came to you, brothers... Or when I, excuse me, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech of wisdom, which, by the way, I've been doing some lofty speech, uh, and since it comes from the Bible, it is wisdom. Okay, but what does Paul say here? For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, we sometimes pull this out of context to be like, okay, well, that's the only thing we're supposed to talk about. Pay attention to what Paul says, and you're going to find out that he disagrees with that. Verse 3, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So when I first came to you in weakness and fear and trepidation, I just preached Jesus to you, and nothing more and nothing less. I did so in simplicity and power and not in wisdom. Not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Good? Look at the next verse. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. (laughs) So drink that in. Christ and him crucified? Yes. That is always and ever the foundation. But is that where we stop? No. So yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. Now, who are the rulers of this age according to Paul's usage of this language? If you go back to Ephesians where we started, it's not flesh and blood, but the rulers, the authorities. We're talking about angelic beings. So it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. That is, the angelic beings themselves don't even understand this stuff. Who are doomed to pass away. The immortal angels fell from God, and now they're doomed to pass away. Paul's getting that from Psalm 82, by the way. Where God is talking to, the, to these angels, and he says, I said that you are gods, but you will die like men. Okay, so look at Paul. He says, these rulers of this age, the angelic beings, not flesh and blood, but the rulers of this age are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Now that's that we become that we end up taking their place in the inheritance as the cosmic power. So that's our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. None of them understood that they were going to be thrown out and replaced with us. And they didn't understand how it was going to happen. So pay attention to what Paul goes on to say. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Who crucified Christ? Not flesh and blood. Not, I mean, in this sense, not my sins, not your sins. Not Jew, not Roman. Don't pay attention to the puppets. Look at the puppet masters. It was the gods and rulers fallen of this age that crucified Jesus. And Paul says they made a huge blunder. That if they would have understood what God's plan was, they never would have killed him. Because in killing him, they did what? What did his death do? Destroyed the power of sin and destroyed the power of death, which is all the power they have. 
Not only that, but in destroying him, he proved to be faithful unto the end, humiliating himself more than any. And thus, Ephesians, God raised him up and exalted him above every name which is named. In other words, God in his justice is so offended that these fallen angel gods crucified his innocent son that to recompense and justify the situation, he puts his son above them all. So that every knee, and especially in view here are angelic knees, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, have to bow because they crucified the Lord of glory, giving him the reign as a human being over them. So the beauty of this is the incarnation, because of course as the Son of God, he reigned ahead of time, but now he reigns as man over them. That's why the ascension of Jesus is the most understated miracle and Christological act of all. Revelation cues us to this. When we see the throne room and we see the Father and the Spirit, we see everybody there, but not the Son. And suddenly the Son ascends and takes his throne as a man and all the events of Revelation begin. Absolutely. Okay, so again, um, and I know we're just a minute over, bear with me. None of the rulers of the age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. You see what I'm saying when heaven is greater than we all? Would any of us imagine we'd be part of this inheritance of the heavenly hierarchy? No. In fact, we almost like have a sense of rejecting it because it's like, I, no, I just want to be humble. I just want to go to heaven. And God has so much more in store for us than that. Notice, too, how often this, vo- this verse is quoted at us to quiet us. Uh, oh, no, I have seen, no ear has heard, so get off of this topic, pastor. And, um, but look what Paul says next. These, verse 10, these things God has revealed to us. So that, hardly, that verse hardly silences us. In fact, Paul uses it to say that these things that once were hidden, that I had not seen, the ear had not heard, that the heart of man had not imagined, that God had prepared. Now these things God has revealed to us through the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And off we go. Okay, so that's the best I can do in terms of an introduction, in terms of a teaser. Thank you for your patience. I'll be hanging out. Inevitably, you'll have some questions. And uh, yeah, we've got, obviously, you can see that it's expansive. We've got tons more we can talk about. But All right. The Lord be with you. Take care.